IBM design is really proud of our people, places, and practices. And so our places are our design studios. We have design studios all over the world. We started out with just one in Austin, and now we have one in Austin, Research Triangle, New York, Silicon Valley, England, lots and lots of other cities all over the world. And so we're really proud of those spaces as a collaborative space to host workshops, work on a you know whiteboard a problem together, and otherwise just have this strong in-office culture. Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pompat. Welcome to this episode of What is UX? I'm Peck Pompat. I'm the founder of Impeccable. We're a digital product studio uh, where we help enterprises, funded startups, and global industries realize their vision through amazing practical UX design and software engineering. And on this episode, we have Senior Design Manager of at IBM, Tessa Rhodes. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks just for to, having me. Oh, you're very welcome. And in, to quickly give a little bit brief bio to, to the listeners, uh, Tessa joined uh, the first cohort of IBM Design Bootcamp in 2013 and has since seen the design org at IBM to a truly led uh, design-led organization and has reviewed hundreds of portfolio applications in the eight and a half years of IBM Design. And she's launched the initial version of the product IBM Cloud and all subsequent versions. That's right. That's yeah. right. And, uh, and you're in Austin, Texas. I am. Yeah. So how did you first get into design? I'm always curious. Very, the very earliest sort of design intended work I did was around that application. I don't know if you remember the website Zanga, but it was like an online blog. And I remember. Right, right after it was MySpace. And so I used to paid as like a seventh grader to design people's Zanga blogs using HTML and CSS and of course Microsoft Paint and their MySpace later I would I downloaded a not strictly legal version of Photoshop and I would <laughs> use that and have my friends and other folks enlist me to design their MySpace pages and Zanga pages and from that point forward I kind of just continued to exp- experiment with digital graphic design and layout design and I went into school at the University of North Carolina for editing and graphic design through the journalism. So I did journalism and English, and then half of that journalism was graphic design. So that was certainly the major introduction as well as layout design in the, in the J school that led me to product design now. Okay. I remember those Zynga blogs. I also remember them to be like this sort of greenish tint by default, right? <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? That that green yes, hue? That's what I'm imagining too. It's like this sort of awful slime green color that you, it was begging you to change it. <laughs> I feel like the the blogs I read most most of them were just using that default green, but I so I didn't even know you could change it. I knew like MySpace was very customizable and it kind of became the you know, there was a good reason why designers should, you know, some people shouldn't be designing their MySpace pages and should hire professionals. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh my gosh. So tell me about the design, IBM design bootcamp. So it was the first cohort. How did you even hear about it and why did they start it? And what did you learn and what, what was the program like? Yeah, it was, it was amazing. So in 2013, I think IBM 
certainly had some designers, but they didn't have the the product designer role wasn't very well defined and separate from even a developer or um, a user researcher. And so the mission was taken on by Phil Gilbert, who, if you want to picture him, he kind of looks like Steve Jobs, but with cowboy boots and a belt buckle. And so he he went to the CEO of IBM and asked for some space and some headcount to build out a design program to try to revolutionize the software part of IBM, which was doing fine before, but that he just really wanted to make it a design-led organization and wanted to focus the many products we had down to key products that we wanted to invest time and design effort into and really make good user experiences that were delightful rather than just functional. So Phil's effort led, somehow found me in North Carolina through a friend of a friend had asked about if anyone knew any graphic designers and then posted in the graphic design part of the uh, journalism program Facebook page. And so I saw that. And in fact, I responded to a message that was that was asking if anyone knew any designers. And I was like, I'm a designer. And she was like, great, can you talk right now at Starbucks? And so I turned, I was, I was leaving Starbucks with a drink in my hand. And so I just turned back around and went to go speak to her. She was in the same Starbucks I just came out of. And so I chugged that coffee and then got another coffee to sit with her. And she was like, I can tell you're excited about this mission. I was like, yes, it's definitely not just the caffeine. There's the and, two cups, um, yeah. That... Mm-hmm. And so then I think I flew down. I interviewed with some really amazing people. And in retrospect, were very, you know, it was well above or below their pay grade to be interviewing me. But people like Adam Cutler and amazing design leaders in, in IBM and externally. And they asked me questions that I never thought would be asked of me as what I thought was going to be a graphic designer. I imagine they would ask me like, what's your favorite Photoshop brush? But instead they were like, what's the most important thing to a user when they're experienced? And it was just a very different, a very different world compared to what I had studied in graphic design, but it was, it was better. It was, it was better than I expected because I didn't just want to stay in Photoshop. I wanted to, to see more of it. I wanted to do more of the layout design and more of the experience-based design that I was missing from the other half of my brain, which is really involved in writing and English and journalism. And so understanding a reader or understanding a user spoke to me as more of a user experience design angle. So I was really glad, but not quite expecting what I got in 2013 when I signed on to be a user experience designer at IBM. So it was a pleasant surprise that led me there. And what was the design bootcamp curriculum like there? Yes, it was it was an experiment. It was a prototype. There were 65 of us and we were all pretty much fresh out of college, more or less. You know, maybe that was a master's program or a bootcamp, but we're all pretty much fresh out of college and not all of us were staying in Austin. Some people were from England and other countries and some people would go on to go to New York or the Bay Area instead of staying in Austin. But a large majority of us were staying in Austin. So it was just this amazing summer of fun where we got to meet like-minded people and divide into teams and have, you know, really time-boxed competitions and design challenges. And we learned a lot. So it was structured that in the morning, we would take sort of some lessons almost about design specifically at IBM 
the way IBM wants us to do it, which is a lot of accessibility conversations. I know that's kind of mainstream now, but at the, in 2013, IBM was one of the major companies that had to comply with a lot of the accessibility guidelines because of our government contracts. And so that was a bit of a new concept. And so we had to pull in accessibility leaders from external and internal experts. We had to learn about the history of IBM design, which is kind of amazing. Paul Rand used to work at, at IBM, as well as Charles and Ray Eames and Elliot Noyes and other amazing design heroes of America all have their roots in IBM. And of course, what IBM created and the innovations that company has made from the barcode to the stoplight to you know now mainframes and all kinds of other things. So we got a good dose of IBM knowledge and then just general design practice because it wasn't taught consistently and still probably isn't taught perfectly consistently across different educational spheres. So we learned all kinds of tools about like empathy maps and journey maps and things that you would learn in a design boot camp, all the way to IBM specific types of presentations that we call playback, our hills, which some people might call goals or KPIs, and sponsor users, which is just a way we structure our user research to make sure we have a key participant that's always willing to co-create with us. A few specific IBM terms and educational modules, but a lot of it was just fun. We would go <laughs> on a boat, we would have competitions that were game shows and really get to know each other. And a lot of us even like accidentally lived in the same apartment complex. So it was just such a good time. And those people have gone on to do so many amazing things, but quite a few of us have stayed at IBM for the past eight and a half years since 2013. So it's been so cool to see it grow from 65 designers to now over 3000 designers at okay. IBM in the past couple and of years. And I'm assuming the design bootcamp is still going on. It is. Today it's called Patterns. So Patterns is the branded name for the bootcamp and early professional hires will still go there. It's a little shorter now. They've really gotten it down to a science. That prototype turned into a polished machine where there are cohort coaches and individual cohorts. They have a well-defined project, whereas we did not. They have very dialed in lessons that are supposed to be given and it's all very well, well done now. Whereas I got the more experimental side, this is certainly the more efficient and polished version. And I think there's there's a little bit of a benefit to both, but this one is definitely the objectively better bootcamp. Oh, it's evolved and you know, it has been polished over many years. And yeah, I I've always heard good thing. I, I I have to admit I don't didn't know much uh, going into this call about the IBM's design side of things. And I've always heard great things about kind of like their sales discipline. And uh, I think, you know, even dating back to the earlier days of IBM that, you know, they were IBM salespeople were always well known for kind of like the, there's a, a rigorous sales process and, and, you know, salespeople coming out of IBM were, were always great kind of by reputation. Totally. It was, you know, I think that kind of set us up a couple things, some good, like that IBM has an ethical backbone and that we try to, you know, make sure we're not crossing boundaries with our sales, but also might have set us up as the the blue suits that I think mm -hmm. we used to have the reputation of being, which any company with a hundred plus year old legacy might have that perception. 
But now I think IBM is changing so much to be a little bit more of the design, a little more flexible, more, we're more willing to try things and fail. And so I think it's, it's really changing from the blue suits of the salesman days, but our sales team is amazing and continues to be. Um, and the business has evolved several times, right? Uh, I mean, I at one point had an IBM ThinkPad laptop and, you know, IBM has sold you know, that brand off and it's kind of evolved and become its own thing. And, you know, IBM has become more of a software company, which kind of brings me to your work, IBM Cloud. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, IBM Cloud, from my perspective, was something we were going to try to do right out of boot camp. So right after we graduated the three-month boot camp, we were going to try out a marketplace for software as a service and platform as a service offerings. And it was going to be called Codename Bluemix. And it continued to be called Bluemix for a couple of years in the public market. Yeah, I remember that name. (laughs) Yeah. And we sold it as that for a while before transforming it to IBM Cloud. And so it was just such an experiment. And for a while, we had designed some pretty safe UIs. They were kind of gray and had some blue on them. And we did not have a design system or a design language at this point, but we had a very old legacy design system. And so when Phil Gilbert saw our designs, he was like, these look nice. They look professional, but it looks too much like the old the old design system. So do something else, do something crazier. And so we we went a different direction. We started researching kind of more of like the hackathon developer and looked to Reddit. We looked to more of like a deep code, green and black aesthetic. We looked into like robots and spaceships. And so we made something a little more playful. That turned out maybe not to be the perfectly right user. That, that wasn't our biggest user group, but it was one that got some attention and got a bit of a, a change for IBM. And, and that was important at the time, was to make it friendly for, for folks coming in and not just the regular old IBM software that they were used to because it was a new effort. And it did end up being the fastest growing self-made product in IBM's history because we got to a lot of users very quickly, I think in part because of the interest in, in what it was going to be and how it was going to be different from IBM either mainframes or IBM software before. So it grew quickly, but it was a small team at the time. It was still an experiment. We didn't have a massive group of people working on it in the beginning. I think at one point it was only three designers. And in the beginning, and we were doing the t-shirts and the stickers and the UI design and the TV commercials and the branding. And now it's, I think, well over 100 designers on IBM Cloud. So it's grown a lot in the past several years, and it's been fun to watch watch things change and scale. What was the initial MVP or launch uh, product look like? <laughs> oh, man. In fact, I, I show it to people who start because I don't know about you, but I'm kind of inspired by bad design almost more than I'm inspired by good design. And so <laughs> I like to show I like to show new designers the semi-ugly history of IBM Cloud. And I'll show them some of the first mockups the three of us designers did that were so hexagon focused. We loved hexagons because I guess the the theme was that they would fit together and they would be modular, but really it was just a shape. And so there were lots of hexagons and robots and it was a dark UI, but with light 
boxes on it. And so it probably would hurt your eyes if you were looking at it at night. And it was, yeah, it had like a lot of the neon green and teal, like that navy and teal color scheme was really popular in 2013. I think we did do some user research that led us to believe that was good, but it was just probably with the wrong users. It was with hackathon developers rather than an enterprise IT admin. Right. So it was, it was a little clunky and a little bit almost childish we found in later testing, but I do like to show it to people to see, see how far we've come from, from that to a polished, you know, full cloud suite that we have today. Yeah. I, I, I too like to, you know, sometimes when we take in kind of up and coming designers and, 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 you know, once they've been at our company for many years, I, I always take, like to talk about or should talk, you know, kind of get them to show like the, their old portfolio that they showed to coming prior to, to, to our company and just get them to show how far they've come in their journey as a designer. And then, you know, and, and even myself, if you just go to my old dribble account, you know, like, you know, look at the first few posts and there's, it's very cringeworthy. <laughs> but, <Okay>. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, actually is a great segue into uh, this next topic because what caught my eye in terms of talking to you is, you know, th through your years, um, you reviewed hundreds of portfolio applications. So maybe, you know, th the value of this episode is as a veteran in looking at portfolios is what makes, you know, what are some of the tips and what makes a good portfolio what are the gotchas? What are some things you shouldn't do? And uh, yeah, what, what what would it take to you know for someone to someone's portfolio to catch your eye, and and anyone who's interested in working at IBM or or joining the IBM Design Bootcamp? Totally, I think a lot of people put a little bit too much pressure on themselves to make a beautiful, perfect site, and they might code it themselves, and they might really really work hard on on that part of the puzzle. And that is a key piece. And we certainly can't ignore that. The site itself that hosts your work or even the PDF itself that hosts your work is a key frame for your work, but that's, that's it. It's just the frame for your work. Your work is supposed to be standalone. And so I think when people try to get really fancy with that and then, you know, may actually risk performance and it doesn't load and there's issues with that, that can be really distracting. And then in terms of the projects themselves, really fewer is better for me. I don't tend to have time to look at more than three. So it's kind of nice to have three to five, maybe six at, at most. But when you have 12 to 20 projects on there, I'm not going to be able to look at all of them anyway. So, so pick your favorites and see if you can embed. If there's a piece of branding you did, maybe embed that in the larger project. And within the projects, there's just a sweet spot of too much and not enough information. If the details are too extensive, it's really hard to, to get a clear picture of the problem you're solving and what the most important information is. And if there's not enough information, it's just a before and after. I don't know what part you worked on. I don't know what part your teammate worked on. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you did the UX or the visuals. I don't know what iterations you did to get there. Or if it was just, you know, or did you just start with the hi-fi and draw a wireframe? I don't know. So <laughs> it's nice to have that Goldilocks amount of content that is quick to scan, but then you can go back and read if you're interested in understanding the problem space. So 
really, I'd say three to five projects with three, your first three being the ones you really want people to look at and following a consistent template that goes through your contributions, the problem itself, the before or any competitive analysis, iterations you went through to get to your final product and then the final product and any next steps you want to get to is just an easy template with the minimum amount of information you need to communicate those details. I think that's that describes most of the best portfolios I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. I think to your point, a lot of people spend way too much time on, like you said, the frame and getting that right. But, you know, maybe the work itself, it's almost sometimes compensating when they don't have the body of work where they're trying to make the frame beautiful, but really maybe you should go back and do some more projects (laughs) and to fill it out. I've seen a few people put their own portfolio website as a project on their portfolio. And it's meta. I mean, it's, it's a nice try, but I think it, you could, by the time it took for you to write up the project that was the portfolio, you probably could have done another exploratory redesign of an app you like to use yeah. in the same amount of time. We also don't mind that a, a project that you did out of passion or fun can certainly still go in the portfolio. It doesn't have to be a paid project that a company is sponsoring you to do. And boot camp projects are, and school projects are, of course, awesome. What do you think about relevancy? You know, you mentioned, you know, showing three to five projects, you know, 20 is way, way too much. You know, certainly when, you know, IBM's looking, you know, are they having the lens of like, is this relevant? You know, I mean, I put myself in, you know, the hiring person's shoes and obviously I want my case studies to be and portfolio pieces to be relevant. Yeah, early on, in 2014, 2015, we used to get a lot of fully graphic design and arts portfolios. And that was tough, but a couple of them could slide through if they could clearly articulate how this art was relevant to design and why they were interested in user experience and how they were going to transition their into a visual designer that was leveling up the moments of delight in a platform. And so we had some success with people kind of taking what they had worked on and then communicating how that applied and why they wanted to to change direction. So certainly some success there. In fact, those people went on to be very successful at IBM. Same for industrial designers. I don't know what it is about industrial designers, but all the ones that have applied and gotten through the interview process have been so amazing. They've gotten, they've really clicked with the way we work. So that certainly shouldn't stop people from applying. And then there's, you know, product developers who try to often apply for product design. And that one's hard because there are front-end development roles within the design program. But if they really, really care about computer science, they may be better for a different pipeline. So we just either move them over or if they have a clever letter or clear description about looking for a design-centered role um, with a specialization in front-end, then we still will, of course, progress with them if they have the, the right skills. And for actual UX, we get applicants from all backgrounds, all kinds of education backgrounds, user research gets research, of course, backgrounds, formal research and psychology backgrounds. And all of, I've seen all of those people be successful making career changes and jumps into user experience or the general design program. What makes it a, for a good cover letter? I think our cover letter is more of a, input field really in the application process, but 
and I don't know if we still receive them the same way, but I used to really like them. They would occasionally ask the question, like, why did you apply to IBM? And people would say, I like it. I've heard of it before. And other people would be like, my dad has worked here. This is my legacy. I, I want nothing more than to work at this company. And like, there's, there's a difference there a little bit. And then also communicating like some awareness of the design program itself, or if you're applying for other companies that aren't IBM, maybe just specifically describing why that company clicks with your values and skills and how those two things match up is always a good, a good idea, but not too much more because again, when you're reviewing a whole bunch in a week, um, probably not likely that I'll read all 3000 words, but helpful to get a, a brief description of your values and skills and how they match. Yeah. Yeah. What's the interview process like over there? Pretty, pretty standard. I think it's a portfolio review phase, which you, which we do internally. And then I believe my HR partners do a screen and then managers and teams will, will pick certain people that they need. If, you know, if, if a team needs a visual designer, we'll get a pool of visual designers, interview the ones that we pick and then it's usually just a sometimes a design challenge depending on the team and that design challenge might be just a simple enterprise made up problem and then they would they would we'd try to narrow it down to just a couple hours spent on that and then a in-person design challenge and of course just a regular one-on-one interview about the role and about their questions and making sure it's the right job for them because, you know, working at IBM, there's a lot of questions and a lot of opportunities within the company. And we, you know, just because it may not be the right fit for us doesn't mean that we couldn't um, move them to another team. There's so many different types of jobs. So we try to get a feel for what they really want to do and not just the single role they happened to interview for. So yeah. pretty standard process, I think. <laughs> Are there any products within the IBM cloud that you're particularly proud of, the, the work that you've done within that? Tell us about that. So I work on some of the key platform pieces of IBM cloud, less, less in the offering space and more in the kind of global platform experiences. So the registration and login and dashboard navigation, detail pages, the profile page, just those experiences that any user would interact with regardless of their persona. And of course, I'm proud of my teammates on the offering teams like Satellite and Kubernetes and Red Hat integrations have all been, you know, award-winningly inspirational to me. And so my teammates across the IBM Cloud Design are all doing amazing work, but my team specifically on the IBM cloud platform side really do some of those key transferable sort of platform type experiences that would apply, whether it was a platform like Netflix or YouTube or Spotify, any platform would have login registration, dashboard, profile navigation. So um, looking into the wealth of research that the rest of the world has on those things and doing serious competitive analysis and trying to make sure our experiences are enjoyable, even though it is ultimately an IT and developer tool, it was important to us. For designers, you know, 
I think when I'm just speaking naively, like a lot of designers go into this because they like, they're exposed to consumer software, right? And, you know, they like, they might like Spotify or Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat and, and the design of these products. And that's how they got into this field. You know, speaking for myself, I think, you know, dating myself a little bit and kind of like the early days of the web of, you know, products, simple products like Google and Hotmail and PayPal and like kind of, and, and you know, mostly consumer or prosumer products with this audience, you know, obviously this is a B2B product where the, the end user is very technical. Um, a developer, I think you can use the word hacker at times. How do designers think, how should designers learn more about this and think about this? And what is kind of the, the expectation in terms of knowing the space? Well, you have to rely on experts as opposed to yourself to understand what people, what the users want to do and what they need to accomplish. You have to really ask questions and really research it. It's, it doesn't always come down to just your instinct. Yeah. Your instinct may not be correct for what an IT admin needs to do most quickly. Whereas I think sometimes with consumer products, you can put yourself in your own shoes and that's a little bit, it's actually not easier necessarily because you could still be wrong there and that just feels mm -hmm. unnatural. But at least I know I need to start from a place of research because I'm not an IT admin or a developer. So we know we need to get some generative research, speak to experts, understand them, watch them, maybe do a contextual inquiry of how they would use a competitive product and or our product as is and see how they move through their day and their experience using it. And then I think for brand new designers working on IBM Cloud, we don't really, if they don't know anything about cloud, we don't worry about it. We know that it will, it will happen over time. The subject matter expertise will grow. And over a certain amount, amount of sleeps, their brain will grow and absorb new <laughs> things. And they'll be able to copy the words that someone said yesterday and repeat them. And then suddenly they'll know what that means. And then they'll be able to, they'll be able to learn. We have enough onboarding materials to make sure they're able to learn, but we're not worried about people having full subject matter expertise on day one. That's usually not helpful. So well, it's hard. I think, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. otherwise you're just, you know, yeah. I mean, the, the, your pool of candidates also are a lot slimmer. Right. And even if they did know all about cloud, there's still, I'm sure, plenty of acronyms at IBM that we could offer that are new. <laughs> that you'll need to learn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even IBM is a, an acronym. And uh, so where, where can people find information if they're interested in uh, jobs at IBM? Sure ibm.com slash design is a great place to go look. I think there's a job openings tab on that page. And then otherwise, I think you can just Google jobs at IBM if you're not a UX designer. And we have lots of other openings as well. Yeah. Um, kind of in this still COVID world, how has hiring been, you know, maybe, you know, you, you yourself, I think, moved to Austin for, for this job, right? At some point, it was a not remote for you and how, how is how has that changed during the pandemic for IBM? Well, IBM design is really proud of our people, places, and practices. And so our places are our design studios. And we have design studios all over the all over the world. We started out with just one in Austin and now we have one in Austin, Research Triangle, New York, Silicon Valley, England, lots, lots and lots of other cities 
all over the world. And so we're really proud of those spaces as a collaborative space to host workshops, work on a you know whiteboard a problem together, and otherwise just have this strong in-office culture. So we're really proud of those places. But the head of Avion Design is really thinking through, you know, does that have to be a physical place? And what can we do to replicate the feeling of our studios digitally? Because the culture was the in-office culture was such a big part of our recruitment, really. I mean, I think people who wanted to feel like they were part of something big and be around like-minded people were attracted to IBM. I know I was. And we, you know, we used to have huge Halloween parties where we'd change the whole layout of the of the studio in Austin and move all the furniture and build huge sets for Halloween and have big parties. And we've, you know, we need to figure out how to replicate that or replicate the feeling of togetherness and collaboration. And I think we've done that pretty well. We did have a digital Halloween this year that was actually very fun. And now I think we still want people to be somewhat close to one of those studios. We want to give them the option to go in to collaborate and use the the benefits of the space. But I don't think we're, we certainly aren't requiring anyone to come back before they're, before they want to, but they're welcome to use the offices for those specific collaboration and culture purposes that they that they desire. So we're welcoming folks back to a studio if they would like to use it, but certainly not forcing anyone to return. And so remote work is the current situation for almost all designers. Yeah, it's a, it's been like that for for us too. And you know, I, actually, we went full remote and kind of just owned that. And I, I myself have moved, but yeah, I think somewhat uh, a lot of work has changed. And then, like big companies that have beautiful offices, are yeah, it's definitely yeah. a huge shift. And and unfortunately, it's yeah, it's it's, it's kind of a bummer, when, especially when companies have invested so much into these beautiful spaces. And you know, I. I myself had a small studio in the Bay area in downtown San Jose at one point. And, you know, that was a nice place that even, you know, kind of, I would say maybe some of the more uptight clients enjoyed coming to our space because it was, you know, nice and modern and, and kind of inspiring. So they, you know, and then it was downtown and it was easy to walk and have lunch there, but, but yeah, it's the nature kind of that has, has completely changed. And we've kind of tried to replicate that. And we too had a virtual Halloween, like a zoom Halloween, and we kind of dressed up and we do our best and, uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's a little different, right? <laughs> it is. Yeah. And I think it's, it's amazing to have the opportunity to work remotely. And for the people who love that, that's, it's great. It's just such an amazing way to open up your life for more flexibility and making sure the folks who want to spend more time with their family can do so or work from a different location can do that. But I think for the folks who want to be in a studio or want to be in an in-office culture and feel like they're part of something physically, that, you know, I think that should still be an option. If you, you know, if you do really want to to go into the office and have a separate space and still have your short commute and still go speak to someone face-to-face and draw on a whiteboard. If we have the space for you, you should be able to use it and you should be able to use the cafeteria and the gym that we recruited you with. That was our end of the deal and we should hold hold ourselves to it. But it'll be really interesting to see how that changes and how small and large companies adjust to the, to the 
differing needs and desires of all of their employees because yeah. they want sometimes conflicting things. Right. Yeah. And, and it's hard, right? You know, especially speaking for myself, if companies, if people wanted to get together as a small company, rent can be very expensive. And like, how do you, especially if it's not being used as often, right? Like maybe once a week or once every two weeks. And it's like, okay, how do we still manage to do that? And right. Yeah. Like, like you said, sometimes it's, it's conflicting. Right. It's funny to see people's you know, when people have reactions to their job, they're like, oh, well, it would be easier if we were in person. And I'm like, oh, okay. Do you want to go to the office? We can reserve some space. And they're like, no, definitely not. <laughs> like, okay. So you, <laughs> so you don't want to go back to the office. And they're like, no, I do. And I was like, okay, but just not today. And they're not, like, right. <laughs> <laughs> not now. Yeah. Not, not right now. Yeah. yeah it's, it's tough. Thank you so much, Tessa. I, I know that, you know, so we're, we're both kind of central time zone and uh, it's Friday afternoon. Pleasure to have you on the show and uh, learn, you know, get some perspective from from big company, like a, a reputable company like IBM and your experience, especially uh, reviewing portfolios and, and whatnot as, a, as insights for people looking to improve their portfolios as they search. Absolutely. Good luck out there with the job searches, everyone. And check us out if you haven't if you haven't thought about IBM Design. It's definitely worth looking into. So thanks so much, Peck, for the opportunity to chat today. Yeah, you're very welcome. And we'll link to, to the job uh, postings in the show notes. And how does do folks get a hold of you, Tessa? LinkedIn is a great place. Awesome. Um, active on there. Yep. Thank you. Great. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX? If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guests and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one.